You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. All right. It's the end of the year. A little bit of vacation coming up. Uh, The festivities, the cold weather. I mean, it's all something that harkens back to childhood, I guess. And so does this eggnog. I've always drunk eggnog this time of year. I kind of wish they would sell it other times of the year. Yeah, that would be good. I, I, it's so tasty. Mm. Okay, that's really good. It, it has the viscosity of heavy motor oil, but uh, that's kind of soothing. So I'm just going to kick back here, relax, and enjoy the holidays. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. In this special episode, let science infuse your holidays with a bit more fun. We've got something for everyone, holiday trees engineered to retain their needles, taking a blowtorch to a fruitcake, the mathematics of the dreidel, the physics of Santa's speedy deliveries, and a look at that once-a-year event, the winter solstice. Science for the holidays. You'll like this. Perhaps no holiday food item is more vilified than fruitcake. I mean, there's nothing wrong with its special ingredients, nuts, various types of fruit, and rum or brandy. But when combined, they inexplicably form a concrete hard confection that your guests greet with facial contortions, after which it's ignored, packed away, uneaten, and shoved to the back of the cupboard where it waits to be re-gifted the following year. I'm old enough to remember when Johnny Carson made that classic joke about fruitcakes that there's just one fruitcake in the entire world passed between households. Well, it turns out that fruitcake has an appeal you may not have considered. Its imperishable and indestructible qualities are precisely what makes it a desirable test subject. Let's begin with something that many people are inclined to do when they encounter this traditional treat. At the annual Great Fruitcake Toss in Manitou Springs, Colorado, we test your skills of accuracy, balance, speed, distance, and tossing your fruitcake. I'm Jenna Gallis, the Special Events Coordinator at the Manitou Springs Chamber of Commerce. The annual Great Fruitcake Toss in Manitou Springs, Colorado, pits the tooth-cracking baked good against the physically dexterous, because after all, it requires skill to throw a fruitcake long distances and with precision. Until recently, contest participants were able to employ homemade launching devices for this annual event, but that got out of hand. Well, we've got a number of different devices, whether it's mechanical, 
pneumatic, uh, three-man slingshot. We kind of run the full gamut. Well, you've got to tell me what a three-man slingshot is, because the the one I think about is the one-man slingshot that uh, David used versus Goliath. Well, you know, you picture a gigantic rubber band that takes two people to hold on either side and one person to pull it down in the middle all the way down to the ground before launching a fruitcake. <laughs> all right. That sounds like you get a, a, a lot of distance out of that. What kind of distance are we talking about? Well, it can go hundreds of feet for just the three-man slingshot alone. We're talking thousands of feet for any mechanical or pneumatic device we've ever seen. Thousands of feet. And, and this is a standard one-pound fruitcake? It is. And if you bring your own fruitcake, we will send you to our tech inspect team that will inspect to make sure your fruitcake meets the size and the weight requirements. And if anything were to happen to your fruitcake in the course of your competitions that day, you can also visit our fruitcake doctor who can patch it up. (laughs) Fruitcake doctor. That sounds like a medical specialty that we don't have at my local hospital. Uh, You mentioned pneumatic devices. I assume that that's just uh, what it sounds like. It's just an air-powered device. You have some sort of compressor and a tank, and then you it's like an air gun, right? You just fire them uh, that way. I mean, they launch airplanes with pneumatic devices. How far does a pneumatic (laughs) device toss toss a fruitcake? Well, these fruitcakes were being tossed well over a mile. Um, In fact, they were being tossed on the other side of the mountain, and it became sort of a hazard for the residents that live over there. So we had to kind of scale that back and tie in our mechanical pneumatic category into sort of a distance slash accuracy so that we're not putting anybody in danger of being pelted by a fruitcake coming down out of the sky. (laughs) <laughs> Finally, Jenna, any tips for participants on how to get the best in accuracy and uh, and distance? Ooh, well, if you've hit the gym and pumped some iron and you've got that great, uh, you know, right hand or even left hand throw, I mean, it's just about uh, maybe a little practice, focus. You're only throwing a pound, so you can take a few steps to kind of get your stride and, and, and throw it for that distance, the accuracy is a little more difficult because you're throwing through hula hoops of decreasing size. And the smallest one's only about a foot and a half. So it's it's tight. Uh, it depends on, on how good of a pitcher you are, I suppose. But truly just any practice and throwing a ball and you're kind of there. Do they, do they get something to put on their mantle if they win? <laughs> well, you know, if you are the winner of the day in the most categories, you are named fruitcake king or queen. Your name gets placed upon the fruitcake throne, which sits outside of the Chamber of Commerce office. And you also receive local gift certificates and a trophy. And bragging rights, honestly, the most important. <laughs> Jenna Gallus, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. Jenna Gallus is Special Event Coordinator for the Manitou Springs Chamber of Commerce in Colorado. But we haven't gotten rid of the fruitcake yet. Oh, yes, there's more. For those for whom turning the fruitcake into a projectile is only the beginning, not the end of experimental possibilities for this dense, nutty concoction, we give you Fruitcake Science at the Science Museum of Virginia. Imagine any experiment you could conduct on this barely edible one-pound wonder, and Laura Kramer has probably done it. And, yes, this will involve liquid nitrogen. Not being one to shy away from an opportunity for scientific discovery, I've agreed to join in. So, hello, Seth. Do you have a fruitcake in front of you? (laughs) Yes, I have a a very lovely-looking fruitcake. So what can you tell me about your fruitcake, Seth? Well, it's, you know, it's, I don't know, four or five inches long and about an inch and a half tall and maybe two inches wide. I mean, you know, it's, it's the size of a miniaturized loaf of bread, and it's covered in fruit. I see cherries and nuts and... 
Do you have a similar looking fruitcake in front of you? I do also have a fruitcake. Mine is about a pound. It's also a similar size to yours, covered in lots of fruit. And I will say mine is pretty sticky. Okay. What are we going to do with these fruitcakes? Well, we're today, um, Seth, you and me, we are going to do a test on our fruitcake. We're going to see if it can sink or it can float. So we do lots of fruitcake science testing throughout the holidays. Um, This is one of the experiments that we do. All right. Well, tell me what to do. I'm ready to do the experiment. I've got my white lab coat on, ready to go. Okay. Do you have a bowl of water? I I do have a big kind of pitcher of water here, and it has a fairly wide mouth. How big a slice should I cut off this thing? I would say, and I'm going to do this to my fruitcake too, maybe about a one-inch slice of your fruitcake. One inch. All right. I'm going to get this to the nearest fraction of a millimeter. Ooh. Hey, you know, it's really hard to cut. Yeah, I'm going to get a bandsaw Mine's here. Mine's pretty crumbly. Oh, really? No, this one is definitely not crumbly. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's got mechanical integrity. Okay, I've got a one-inch thick slice of fruitcake. This looks like something that could, you know, break the tiles if I dropped it. They're pretty brick-like. All right, I have my bowl of water all ready to go. And so... On the count of down from three, together, we're going to place our piece of fruitcake in the water. So like all good experiments, first things first, we need to make a hypothesis. So what do you think is going to happen to this fruitcake when we put it in the bowl of water? Well, honestly, I'm looking at it to see if it has lots of embedded air bubbles, which would give it some buoyancy. And I don't see many. You know, this is about as dense as you know my relatives. So I, I, don't, I don't know. I think it's going to sink. Honestly, I do. But there's only one way to make sure, so let's test. All right, are you ready? I am ready. All right, here we go. Three, two, one, drop her in. Ooh. (laughs) Well, it it looks like a mafia experiment on the Chicago River. (laughs) Went all the way to the bottom. It's it's dead, Jim. It's just sitting in the bottom. Is yours? Mine is, too. Mine sunk like a brick right to the bottom of the bowl. Okay, so we predicted that, but what, what does that show me about science? What does that tell me? Doing this experiment, we like to have a conversation with our visitors all about density. So density is a ratio of mass divided by volume. So, as you know from us holding our fruitcakes, they are pretty heavy. There's a lot of fruit packed in a very, very small size. So when you drop it in water, it will sink like a rock. Let me suggest this, Laura. I mean, maybe the problem here is not the the density. It's the geometry. I mean, if I had... (laughs) you know, melted this fruitcake somehow or was involved in the manufacture of this fruitcake and I I manufactured it in the shape of a rowboat, I bet it would have floated. You know, in a sense, by having an open top, (laughs) you've lowered its average density because the top is all just air there. So on average, it's lower density than the water and so it floats, right? That might work. That may be something we have to try. Well, what other sorts of experiments do you do with fruitcake since it's obviously a great test object? Well, one of the things that we do is at our museum, we always have a lot of liquid nitrogen around. So one of the fun things we do is freeze the fruitcake at a temperature of negative 321 degrees Fahrenheit and let it chill out for a good five minutes while we see what's going on. Okay, and what's going on? I mean, obviously, it may look a little different, does it? It does. So uh, when it's sitting in this incredibly cold liquid, it's getting chilled down to pretty close to the temperature of nitrogen, which is about negative 300 some degrees. And meanwhile, we're doing some other experiments so we can kind of compare and so everyone can make a 
guess of what they think is going to happen to the fruitcake. So one of the things that we'll test is with, say, a plant. You mean like a stalk of broccoli or something? We'll say red cabbage, like a leaf of red cabbage like you'd have in your salad. So we'll stick that in nitrogen. And after about 30 seconds, we'll bring it out and drop it on the table. And it shatters like a light bulb. Hmm. Not so good. And what about the fruitcake? So people are expecting it to shatter because a lot of folks have seen like the Terminator film that something breaks in nitrogen and it shatters into millions of pieces. Um, Expect the same thing to happen to the fruitcake. So we take it and we whack it with a hammer and not a whole lot happens. So when they say, why is that? What's your answer? A fruitcake is a pretty dense object. It also doesn't contain a whole lot of water. So the reason why the red cabbage shattered is living things like our plant are super full of water. And as you know, if you put water in a freezer, it will turn to a solid. And so something that thin, when you drop it, will just break. It can't handle the impact of the force. Whereas a fruitcake, incredibly dense, not a whole lot of water. So when you hit it with a hammer, it can absorb the impact a little bit more. And so it just crumbles. All right. So it's absorbing the energy that you're applying to it by slamming it with a hammer by deforming rather than than breaking along, you know, I don't know, crystal boundaries or something like that the way, the way an ice cube would. Correct. Well, okay. Well, I'll keep that in mind if I ever run into a, you know, cryogenic fruitcake. And um, I understand, Laura, that a fruitcake uh, was aboard one of the Apollo missions. Was that part of a scientific experiment or was it something for the holidays for the uh, astronauts? Fruitcake is a pretty calorically dense, it's a pretty nutritious uh, object to eat. So they sent it up for the astronaut seat on Apollo uh, 7. And Notably, they didn't eat it because we have in our collections a returned fruitcake from Apollo 7 that is pineapple flavored. I mean, Apollo, those were the missions to the moon. I mean, this was certainly a well-traveled fruitcake and it survived uneaten. Yep, it survived uneaten. So even then, fruitcake may not be the most popular of holiday desserts. Okay, finally, Laura, tell me what's the most rigorous experiment you've done uh, maybe the toughest experiment you've done with a fruitcake and still had it remain basically a fruitcake? One of the most rigorous ones was trying to see if we could burn the fruitcake. So one of the first things that we did is we attached it with a tacked it with a blowtorch. So blowtorches are incredibly hot. They burn at thousands of degrees. And we're thinking, surely this will burn the fruitcake. And all we ended up doing was toasting the outside, um, made a really good smelling uh, caramelization of all the sugars. We melted all the sugars on the outside of the fruitcake. So it smelled amazing, but it didn't really uh, go up in flames like we wanted to see. So our next step was maybe we can try and up the fuel in the fruitcake a little bit. So what we did is we added a little bit of alcohol to it. So alcohol is incredibly flammable. And it's actually pretty traditional. A lot of these fruitcakes that people would eat would be covered in a lot of rum or brandy or something. So we put tons of alcohol on the outside of this fruitcake and lit it in flames. And indeed, it did burn, but it was more like a flambe, uh, like if you ever had like a bananas foster or something. It was just kind of a nice uh, little blue flame, but nothing really made the fruitcake burn. It was just alcohol that was burning on the outside. (laughs) Well, this suggests an easy test if you're in a restaurant. They serve you fruitcake and you want to know, should I be giving this to the kids? You just, you know, try and light it up and that'll tell you whether there's any alcohol in it. Okay. (laughs) Laura Kramer, thank you so very much for speaking to us. Oh, thank you, Seth. This has been a lot of fun. Laura Kramer is manager of science conductors at the Science Museum of Virginia 
in Richmond. Well, I suppose many of these experiments wouldn't turn out the same way if you use some other baked good. <laughs> you mean like angel food cake or something <laughs> like that? That might float. Yes, it probably would. It, it had all that uh, air in there, right? That's what makes it, I guess, angelic. And indeed, <laughs> it, it, it would float. But the fact that fruitcake doesn't float, that was interesting, but it just shows what everybody knows. It's really dense. I don't think there's another treat that I'd be willing to sacrifice. <laughs> well, the, yes, that's right. You usually don't drop your dessert into the, you know, pitcher of water. I mean, no, I mean, holiday cookies, you want to hold on to those. <laughs> You're not going to torch those, right? No, but yes, taking a blowtorch to dessert, I mean, really, that's, that's considered a real faux pas in many quarters. Coming up, holiday tree needles embedded in your carpet are a headache. Can we engineer a better tree? Plus, the terrible truth about dreidels and how physics might just help with those tricky questions about Santa's speedy overnight service. Santa needs to be relativistic. That's no problem. He could go close to the speed of light if he has to. Then, later in the show, the astronomical significance of the shortest day of the year. It's Yule Like This on Big Picture Science. investing in the stock market? In real estate? How about in relationships? Are you earning and investing in your life? I'm Doc G, semi-retired hospice physician and host of the Earn and Invest podcast, where we have the 201 or next level conversations about money and life. Not only how you make money and grow it, but also how you use your wealth to create a better and more fulfilling existence. Join us every Monday and Thursday, wherever you listen to fine podcasts. We've been giving a nod and a nog to the holidays in this episode of Big Picture Science by finding the science in the celebration. Now that we have tips for what to do with leftover fruitcake, which is kind of a redundant term, how do we handle another holiday headache? Christmas tree needles spread across the floor and wedged into the carpet. Lillian Matalana is a research associate at the Department of Forestry and Environmental Resources at North Carolina State University, where they're working on engineering needle-retaining trees. Lillian, I'm uh, not really into putting up Christmas trees. I'm not Christian, but I understand that one of the big headaches with these trees is that they drop their needles. Why do they do that? Uh, well, they drop the needles because old plants need to get rid of different organs. And in this case, the needles simulate like what will be leaf for another kind of tree. My understanding is that one of the most popular trees is Fraser fir. And it has a big needle problem, apparently. Uh, specifically, I hear it sheds its, its needles right onto your carpet where they might get embedded for the next six months. That, that might be bad for your dog if you've got one. But <laughs> you're, you're planning to engineer that problem right out of the fur. How are you going to do that? Uh, well, we are planning to go to the field 
identified some families between this Fraser Fair that we have been following for a while. And we have been noticing that those certain families retain better the needles than others. And to discover what is the genetic behind this, this fact. You know, it sounds to me like what you're doing is you find some varieties of this species, the Fraser Fir, uh-huh. where they don't drop their needles quite as quickly. And you try and figure out, you know, is there a, some... The gene- changes. Yeah, is there mm-hmm. some genetic reason for that? And you're trying to figure that out. I mean, is the assumption here that there is a, a single gene or a small set of genes that govern needle retention, that control how quickly they drop their needles? We don't think that it's a single gene. That would be awesome if we just find the, the magic gene attached to all of this process. But we are, based on our data, the data that we are analyzing right now, we, we kind of have a set of genes that are correlated to the differences. Okay, so if you find these genes, uh, that, that control how quickly the needles drop. It sounds like something from the phonograph industry. Are you going to try and then re-engineer the trees? And if so, are you going to plant these sort of GMO trees uh, all over the place? Uh, well, that's, that could be an option, but this is still a lot of work for having engineering the trees. All right. So uh, I shouldn't expect that next year I'll be able to buy a Christmas tree <laughs> that, that, that has, you know, the, the needles will stay with the tree for, uh, you know, well into April or something like that. Not going to happen. No, no, definitely not. This does take a lot of time. Thanks so very much mm-hmm. for speaking with us. No, thank you. Lillian Matalana is a research associate at the Department of Forestry and Environmental Resources at North Carolina State University in Raleigh. Well, this is one present that isn't quite wrapped yet. No, no, you can't go buy one of these trees yet, but you can see what's coming down the pike. And of course, they have a big incentive to do this in North Carolina because anybody who's been to North Carolina knows that 96% of the state is covered in conifers, so uh, it's probably a big product for them. One day we may have trees that don't drop their needles. What do you think of that? Well, I'm on. I'm all for it. Look, I Wait, mean, but you don't even put up Christmas trees. No, 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 no. But I'm, you know, I wouldn't begrudge my neighbor a needleless carpet or something like that. Besides, if you can do it with trees, you can do it with other plants. I mean, there are all sorts of things. I have a big problem with the trees in my front yard dropping their leaves onto my driveway and worse onto my car. And how would the trees tell that story? Would they say maybe? And I have it problem with all the humans paving over my homes with concrete? Yes, but they're not working at the local biohack lab. (laughs) I think trees are beautiful the way they are. We brought trees into our house that are, um, you know, lopsided and maybe more needles on one side than the other, and you love them all the more. All right. Well, we've heard a lot about Christmas trees, but growing up Jewish, of course, we didn't have a Christmas tree. But we did occasionally play dreidel at Hanukkah. Always sort of enjoyed spinning this little four-sided wooden top, uh, the dreidel. And, you know, it would land on on the floor at some point. And one side would be up with a Hebrew letter on it. And on the basis of which letter it was, you either had to put some money into the pot or take some money out and so forth. So you play against, you know, your friends. Uh, Of course, we weren't allowed to use real money. It was always Hanukkah gelt, which is to say chocolate money. (laughs) Okay. But, uh, you know, it was fun. But I've never been really hooked on it. Well, maybe there's a reason for that. It seems that dreidels are like loaded dice. Not fair. 
Mathematician and illustrator Ben Orlin explained this on his blog, mathwithbaddrawings.com, in a piece entitled The Terrible Truth About Dreidel. Okay, Ben, lay it on me. You know, there's four options. You spin this top. It all looks very symmetrical. And so you think uh, going into the game that it's going to be one in four. But in here, I get to quote two of my favorite researchers, people I've never met, a father and a daughter named Robert and Eva Nimiroff, who actually went and they didn't just settle for the kind of armchair analysis of like, well, you know, there's four sides, so it should be one in four. They actually took three dreidels and spun them hundreds of times and kept track to see, does it really come up one in four times? And? And not at all. Yeah, let, let, me, let me quote from their abstract here, which I think is a, is a nice piece of writing. They say, all three dreidels tested. The three dreidels were a cheap plastic dreidel, an old wooden dreidel, and then the third one was a dreidel that came embossed with a picture of Santa Claus, <laughs> uh, which raises other, other questions, I think. But what they said is that none of the three were fair. And in fact, there are pretty dramatic differences between how often each side came up. Well, well, give me some idea when you say not fair. I mean, uh, instead of 25%, it was uh, 24.98% or something. I mean, was it, was it a significant difference? It was, yeah. I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but I think it was more like the, the least common one was kind of in the high teens, maybe. But actually, what it comes down to is that, you know, that was their three dreidels in front of them. Other dreidels could be more or less fair. The big takeaway for me is actually that spinning is just a really bad way to randomize. You know, if you think about rolling a die, it sort of hops along the table for a moment and then comes to a pretty quick stop. Whereas while it's spinning, it's spinning and it's spinning and spinning, it takes 10, 20 seconds maybe before it falls. And that gives it a lot of time for little differences in weight or in balance to kind of have their effect. I see. So it's it's the fact that it, unlike a die, when you throw it, okay, you know, within a few seconds, you see which side has come up. It doesn't get a lot of uh, opportunity to favor the loaded side of the dice, uh, if there is a loaded side. But here, because of the spinning, you're emphasizing the, the slight irregularities of manufacture? Yeah, yeah. There's actually a whole field of research on this, on the question of spinning as, a, as an act of randomization. Um, and in fact, there were some researchers at Stanford who had lots and lots of students. I guess this is what you do at Stanford, is you spin coins. This, yeah. this is my, I, I did not attend Stanford, but my that's the nature of the education is your professors tell you to flip coins and keep track of the heads and then to spin coins and keep track of the heads. Um, anyway, when this was done in the early 2000s, they had dozens of students do this. And some of them were getting results like uh, when they spun a penny, they would get 92 tails and eight heads. My goodness. Uh, that, that wasn't every student, but there were a few that were getting results like that, which would, if it were anything like a fair process, that would never happen. That's extremely unlikely. Okay, so this is kind of non-intuitive, but I recall many years ago, in fact, uh, when I was a grad student, uh, we would occasionally make trips to Las Vegas, and I had read that, well, you know, consider a roulette wheel. You think that the chances for any given number on the roulette wheel to come up would be one in 38 for an American roulette wheel. Uh, but if there's a slight bias of a few percent, because the wheel's a mechanical thing, and obviously it's not totally uniform, that that slight bias would mean that if you just spun it often enough, eventually you'd see that, oh, well, the numbers on this side of the wheel are coming up a little bit more. You bet all your money there, and eventually, you know, you can afford a new home. It sounds like you had the same thing with the dreidel. Yeah, it does seem like that. Yeah, I think it would be hard to find a, uh, a dreidel casino willing to, you know, stake you enough candy or little little coins that you're going to be able to buy a new home off of it. But it, it does seem true in dreidel, yeah, that, you know, as with a roulette wheel, and more so than a roulette wheel, which is a, uh, you know, very finely engineered piece of equipment, a dreidel is usually a nice, you know, kind of pleasant, homemade-looking sort of thing. And so, you know, it's got little erratic features, and it's not going to be a totally one-in-four chance of each side. Maybe it's a good thing that people only 
only play for gelt, what's called gelt, chocolate money, not actual money. Yeah, I think I think that's fair. Yeah, Dreidel also has an additional problem, which is that if you sort of listen to those four things that can happen, you know, the you either nothing happens or you lose one piece or you win half of what's in the middle or you win all of it. You know, if you think about it, and this is if you ever play Dreidel, this happens, you want to go first because there's a decent chance that you're going to either, you know, win all of it right off the bat or that you'll win half of it and then the pot is much smaller. So actually Dreidel does in in most circumstances, like you, you want to go first. So if you're playing lots and lots of Dreidel, you have to take turns going first. All right. Well, I'll play Dreidel then and send the results to Stanford. Ben Orland, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you so much. Ben Orlin is a mathematician and illustrator, and he is the author of the book, Math with Bad Drawings, Illuminating the Ideas that Shape Our Reality. And Seth, it sounds like your reality has just been reshaped with this news about the biased nature of dreidel. All right, so it's not random. Well, that's a little disappointing. I don't remember that uh, there was anybody who consistently won a dreidel because of this non-randomness. So in, in some sense, maybe we randomized it by the fact that, uh, you know, there were different people playing the whole time. But one thing that Ben did not talk about are dreidels made out of clay. And if you listen to the famous song involving dreidels, uh, they always talk about making one out of clay. Now, maybe they did that in the 19th century or maybe in the Middle Ages. Who knows? I never made one out of clay. That's really hard. It's hard to make a dreidel out of clay unless you've got some vacuum-forming technology or something in-house. Now, I kind of wonder whether it would also be biased the way the wooden dreidels and the plastic dreidels are. I suspect they'd be even more biased. Well, so now you know not to wager your holiday bonus on the winner-take-all game of dreidel. But are you prepared for the question from youngsters about just how Santa is able to deliver presents all over the world in one evening? It's a head-scratcher, but we turn to physics again, this time to give us insight into Santa's logistics problem. That's right. You may dread the relatives at the holidays, but Santa is up against the laws of nature. Okay, theoretical astrophysicist Ethan Siegel, you've given this some thought. Now, you point out that Santa, if he's going to visit a billion households or whatever it is, he doesn't have a lot of time to do that in one night. How does he do it? You know, you have to remember the Earth is a sphere, and so when it's, you know, still Christmas Eve in Siberia, we may still be having Christmas Eve morning over in Alaska. So there's there's about a total of, if you time it just right, you could probably get up to about 42 hours to deliver all of those presents to children all over the world. All right, 42 hours. Uh, I don't know whether FedEx could do it, but let's consider how many households he needs to visit. You know, if you consider that there are about 7 billion people on Earth and for children under the age of 18, Santa's got to hit every one of those. We're looking at about a billion separate households all over the world. But I mean, a billion households in maybe 40 hours. How much time does he have to fly to the next roof? slither down the chimney, leave the packages, and maybe have a cookie. I mean, how much time does he have? Santa's going to really push the limits of physics. If you're saying, okay, Santa needs to be relativistic, that's no problem. He could go close to the speed of light if he has to. You might say a billion households. How could he ever do that? But remember how fast the speed of light is. We're talking 300,000 kilometers 
every second. So if you're saying, oh, Santa, how are you ever going to do this in just 42 hours? Well, remember, if you have 42 hours, that's over 100,000 seconds. So Santa doesn't even need to approach the speed of light to go from house to house. He just needs to be really good at accelerating and slowing down really quickly. Give me some idea of the problems that he would have just getting up to speed to go to the next house and then slowing down uh, once he gets there. I mean, this has to be a lot of acceleration and deceleration. It absolutely is, Seth. And when you're talking about acceleration and deceleration, what you're also talking about doing is going from no kinetic energy to a large amount of kinetic energy and then back down to no kinetic energy again. So you're really looking at transferring a huge amount of energy into your motion and then out of your motion in a really short amount of time. So when you ask how much time do you have per house, you're talking about a fraction of a millisecond, about 0.1 milliseconds to visit every single individual house. That translates into about a million feet per second or around 500 miles per second. So we are talking about Santa Claus going about a hundred times faster than it would take to get off of Earth. So he's got to accelerate a whole lot. Okay, so he's got to accelerate to this incredible speed, 500 miles per second. That's that's pretty fast. And he has to do it in a fraction of a millisecond. We've all seen those photos of astronauts uh, in centrifuges, you know, being trained for the G-forces and going into space. Those forces are typically, I don't know, 5, 10 Gs, and their faces get all squished up. I mean, how many Gs are we talking about here for uh, Santa? You're definitely talking about a large, large number. Remember that 1G is 32 feet per second squared. And for Santa, we're talking about going from rest to about a million feet per second, and we're doing that acceleration in a millisecond. So we're talking about millions of Gs for Santa that Santa's experiencing with the acceleration and the deceleration. There wouldn't be much left of Santa. Well, you know, you say that and you talk about how when astronauts undergo like 15 Gs, they pass out. The blood leaves their brain. But they're also doing this in a relatively long amount of time. We've had humans experience instantaneous accelerations of over a thousand Gs, for example, on something called a rocket sled. And so as long as there's no severe impact, it's possible that with someone with Santa's constitution being in a one-horse open sleigh like he is, uh, he might be able to handle it. All right. Well, uh, finally, no matter how you slice it, it seems that for Santa to be able to do this, I mean, it seems to violate all the usual laws of uh, what we think we can accomplish uh, in terms of the physics and the mechanics and uh, the engineering and the the energy requirements and so on. But, you know, what I mean, there's always quantum mechanics. And in quantum mechanics, you could have sort of multiple personalities like like, well, for an electron, maybe the electrons over here, maybe it's over there, maybe it's in both places at once. Maybe quantum mechanics offers a way to uh, beat this Santa rap? You know, there are a lot of possibilities for how Santa can do these things that are currently inexplicable. Maybe for the energy 
for the energy gains and losses he experiences in his sleigh. Maybe he has a type of energy source that we don't have. Like maybe he has antimatter that he can just annihilate away and use that to propel himself. Or maybe, like you contend, maybe he's mastered something about quantum mechanics that we don't understand and can tunnel from one location to the other spontaneously without having to overcome these conventional barriers of going down a chimney and fitting your entire body through there. Maybe, like an individual particle can tunnel from one side of a barrier to the other, he can just tunnel into your house for extremely efficient present delivery. Ethan Siegel, thanks so very much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And remember, be good. Ethan Siegel is a theoretical astrophysicist and science writer. Even if you don't observe the holidays, you undoubtedly have noticed that the days around this time of year are short, at least in the northern hemisphere. But eventually, the diminution of sunlight stops and the days start getting longer. It's something to celebrate. An astronomical appreciation for the solstice, next. It's Yule Like This on Big Picture Science. So this is History Uncovered, and I'm Kalina. And I'm Austin. We are the co-hosts of the show. History Uncovered is a podcast presented by All That's Interesting, where we both are writers. We cover all sorts of topics, true crime, unsolved mysteries, history, folklore, the paranormal, you name it. We've been doing this now for more than 100 episodes, covering a wide range of topics, and probably something that's bound to be interesting for everyone out there. Absolutely. And in addition to our normal episodes, we also do a history happy hour about the recent news in the world of history and archaeology, which we cover daily on the site, as well as important historical anniversaries. We also have done some special series. We've done one on the Titanic, doing one on Jack the Ripper, mm-hmm. done one about some famous UFO sightings. So if all of that sounds like something that might be interesting to you and you like having a good time, learning new things and maybe maybe laughing or just groaning <laughs> at some bad puns, check out History Uncovered everywhere you get your podcasts. We've been finding ways that science can make the holidays more fun in this episode of Big Picture Science. But whether you're religious or secular, one thing that affects everyone in the Northern Hemisphere at least, and it's not necessarily fun, the dwindling number of daylight hours as the year winds down. The limited daylight affects moods, not only for those with seasonal affective disorder, but for anyone rushing to finish holiday errands before having to turn the car headlights on in the late afternoon. But the shortest day of the year, the December solstice, which falls anywhere between the 20th and the 23rd, is a reason for celebration. Many cultures since ancient times were aware that the day after the longest night is the beginning of a reversal. Astronomer Andrew Fracknoy joins us to share the astronomical and historical significance of this seasonal decrease and return of sunlight. This is the minimum amount of light that you can have before, thank goodness, the cycle goes back toward increasing days and decreasing nights. And there are two solstices, the December solstice and the June solstice, right? That's right. So the reason we don't want to say which season goes with that month is because one side of the Earth is having the opposite seasons from the other. And this is actually very interesting. Many people still think that the seasons are caused by 
the fact that the earth is a little further from the sun in winter and a little closer to the sun in summer. And if that were true, uh, then Australia would not have the opposite seasons from us because we're both located on planet earth and we'd both have the same distance from the sun. So this is a way you can immediately tell that the distance from the sun is not the key factor in the seasons. So let's talk about what is. Is it primarily due to the tilt of the Earth's rotation? That's right. So the Earth's axis, the line around which we rotate, turns out to be tilted by about 23 degrees. And astronomers have wondered for a long time why that turns out to be. I mean, why is the Earth not going around the sun with its head held up straight and proud? And we know that other planets do. Venus is uh, rotating around a, a heads-up kind of axis. Jupiter is. So what happened to planet Earth? And our best idea is that long ago, when the planets were first forming, there were actually many more planets than we have today. There were many planets of various sizes going around the solar system, and some of them collided. And we on Earth at that time, four and a half billion years ago, suffered a really major collision and got tilted by about 23 degrees. And like many accidents victims, we couldn't straighten out after that. So we've been going around the sun ever since with this tilt of 23 degrees. And so that means that as we go around, sometimes our side, the northern hemisphere, is tilted out of the sun and we get winter, and sometimes we tilt into the sun and we get summer. Just to recap, during the winter solstice, the northern hemisphere is tilted away from the sun, and therefore the bottom of the earth is tilted towards the sun and soaks up more sunlight or sunlight for a longer period? Both. So it turns out that when light is coming directly at you, it's much better at heating. Imagine if you had a flashlight and you're shining it on your garage door. If you're pointing the flashlight directly at the door, then you have an intense spot of light. But if you do the flashlight at an angle, then the beam spreads out and it's much less good at getting light on any spot on the garage door. And that's what happens with the sun. When we're leaning into the sun, the sun comes directly at us and is very good at heating. Just at that time, when we're leaning into the sun, uh, we have long days, and so the sun is not only good at heating, but it has a long time to heat. That's why we have summer. The contrast is when we are leaning out of the sun, as we do in winter, the days are short and the sun is not good at heating. And that double whammy is what causes the, the, the cold of winter, that we're both leaning out of the sun and the sunlight is all spread out and that the days are so short so there's not that much time for heating. As an astronomer, when you think of solstice, is the solstice a day? Is it 24 hours or is it a particular hour of the day? It's a particular moment uh, at which this happens when we are, in a sense, in the most leaning out position. So this is the original lean out and lean in. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> now, which day or what what part of the northern hemisphere, in the case of the, the winter solstice, receives the least amount of light? Or the days are the shortest. Well, so on the winter solstice, how much light you get during the course of that day depends on your latitude, where you're located on the Earth. Uh, here in the United States, for example, we know that Los Angeles is going to get, on that shortest day, 
uh, almost 10 hours of light. On the other hand, if you live in Fairbanks, Alaska, you only get about three and a half hours of light. So it's a vast difference. And if you live at the North Pole, you get no light at all. Above a certain latitude, then, there is just perpetual night. Uh, At the same time, at the South Pole, during the December solstice, there's no night. It's all daylight. So what you see depends very much on what latitude you happen to be located. If you limited all your activity to daylight hours in Alaska, you would get up, put on your clothes, have breakfast, have dinner, put your pajamas back on, <laughs> and go to bed. <laughs> that's, that's right, and the temptation to do that must be quite, quite strong. Um, but we should say that this is actually something that, that human civilization has dealt with for a long time. It's not unique to us in, in, the, in the days before sort of modern radio and modern uh, scientific technology and electric bulbs. People still had to deal with this. And uh, this is where we, some of the rituals that we associate with the winter solstice came from, an attempt to deal with the psychological difficulties of those short days. So what you're introducing here is the historical and cultural significance of solstice. That's right. So the winter solstice uh, has been known Of course, people experienced it whether they understood it or not. In early cultures, the fear was that the sun god, because most of them worshipped some kind of sun god, that the sun god was not liking us very much. Why would it be that the days got shorter and shorter and the spooky nights got longer and longer? It must be that we've done something so the sun god doesn't like us. So a lot of those early ceremonies involved sacrificing or worshiping or, or adoring the god of the sun to bring him back. And the good news was it always worked. Whatever they did, it eventually led to spring and summer. But because it was a time when cultures had to deal with the short days, many cultures in those latitudes where this was significant developed some sort of ceremony around the shortest day of the year. Just out of curiosity, uh, where does the word solstice come from? Sol, so, sol is sun. Sol is sun, and stis, solstice means sun stands still. So what we see is that the sun has gone to a lower and lower altitude in the sky. As you watch in the winter, you see that the sun rises less and less high in the sky, and there's a point where it stops, and that's the solstice. And then we will resume getting back to higher altitudes. The sun will rise to go higher and higher in the sky. And in the summer, during the summer solstice, it gets to its highest point in the sky. For each latitude, that point is different. But for each culture, there was a time when the sun came lowest and stopped. And that's why it's a solstice. Although when we refer to the winter solstice, which is in December in the Northern Hemisphere, it's the summer solstice in the Southern Hemisphere. That's right. Well, we just want to correct any Northern Hemisphere bias that might be leaking through this conversation. Yes, we we have Northern Hemisphere chauvinism, which is a, a pretty serious illness that we want to watch out for. Is it a coincidence that the winter holidays are clustered around the solstice? So this is interesting. Uh, the thought that many scholars have is that that particular moment when the sun reached the the nadir, the lowest point in the sky, and the shortest day came, that turned out to be a very important ritual day in the calendar. There were a number of reasons for this. For example, that was the time 
when uh, you knew that the cold was coming and you slaughtered the animals so you wouldn't have to feed them during this difficult part and that you'd also have meat put aside for the period when the ground was not fertile and food was in short supply. And it was also time to celebrate that the worst had passed. And so many cultures had ceremonies around the rebirth of the sun. Uh, the Romans called it the birth of the unconquered sun. And I like that phrase, that the sun, no matter how low you drove it, was unconquerable and it would return to a higher position and the days would get longer. But um, that celebration of the sun's return, uh, we think, is one of the oldest holidays that actually our cultures on earth have had. And we believe that the Christian tradition was then grafted onto that much older holiday because it then gave a single celebration for everyone in the, in the Roman Empire. So it's not a coincidence that all these holidays fall around the time of the solstice. That's right. It's, it's not at all a coincidence. It was a conscious decision. And I think what's interesting, if you think about it, is that there is a lot of similarity between the birth and rebirth of the unconquered sun, S-U-N, and the birth of the sun, S-O-N, in Christian tradition. We don't want to recommend one religion over another. Many cultures have celebrations around that time. But it's an interesting bit of fitting the, the Christian story with the more ancient view. Well, finally, Andy, do you have any tips for what people might want to look for or pay attention to around the solstice? The other thing that often happens around this time is that people are drawn to the sky because they have so much darkness. Often it can be cloudy at this time, but sometimes you get this brilliant, sparkling winter night and you can really enjoy the stars. You can enjoy what planets might be in the sky. But it is a good time to, to, to huddle in the cold with your loved ones and take a look at the sky, which is, after all, the ultimate widescreen entertainment. Long before we had big screens in our living rooms, the big screen that everyone enjoyed was the night sky. Well, Andy, somehow I think that any time of the year, if I were to ask you, is this a good time to look at the sky, you would say this is the perfect time to huddle outdoors with your loved ones and look at the sky. It's not limited to the solstice. You're right. We, we astronomers <laughs> have a weakness for nighttime gazing, yes. Well, Andy Fracknoy, thank you for joining us in studio once again, this time to talk about the solstice. Oh, it's my pleasure. And happy solstice. Same to you and all your listeners. Andrew Fracknoy is an astronomer and an educator. His most recent book is Introduction to Astronomy. Well, it strikes me, you know, that the spinning Earth is in many ways like a dreidel. Uh, it's, you know, it's not perfectly symmetric. Uh, and it also, it, its pole moves around every 26,000 years. That's not something Andy said, but it does. And that's just like what a dreidel does. If you spin it, you'll notice that the spinning knob on the top sort of rotates. It describes a little circle. Can you also draw a parallel to a spinning fruitcake launched from a catapult? Well, in a way, you could. I mean, fruitcakes, as we've heard, are kind of the lab rat of physics, at least when it comes to after-dinner science. And after all, what's more appropriate for after-dinner science than a fruitcake? That's a great way to teach a little bit of science to kids, not to mention to hungry adults. A lot of the science in the show is something you can do at home. 
maybe not using the pneumatic device to launch a fruitcake into another county, but there are experiments you can do on fruitcakes, and certainly you can also test the randomness of a dreidel. And then, as Andy said, go out and look at the night sky during the solstice. Of course, he would say look at the night sky anytime. You know, science is not something that goes away for the holidays. The holidays can make science fun, and and as we've heard, science doesn't require a giant lab with a lot of glassware in it. You can do it at home. Thank you to the other members of our team whose talent makes the show possible. We wish them and you a happy holiday. Senior producer Gary Niederhoff, assistant producer Sarah Derwin, and operations manager Barbara Vance. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life, including the nature of extreme forms of biology right here on Earth. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to a holiday episode of Big Picture Science called You'll Like This. If you want to hear more Big Picture Science, you'll find past episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. And if you never want to miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to BiPiSci on iTunes or Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Pandora. Well, there's plenty of fruitcake left over. I'll just cut myself another piece. I don't know why everybody says this stuff is so terrible. Well, guess what? It's great. I'm going to tell everybody it's terrible. <laughs>